know, on Wednesday, we were uh, watching the weather reports, uh, went to bed that night not knowing kind of what our, our area, how we would be affected by the hurricane. Uh, woke up Thursday morning to electricity and, you know, all for me, I don't know, did anybody here lose electricity? Any, we had a few folks. Okay. So just so grateful, uh, begin, you know, just the first thing is you're grateful that you're okay. But then as we began to watch the Weather Channel and the different news stations, and then I was on um, Facebook and just, you know, watching friends post and things, began to see the, the full impact of what had happened on the coast. And, uh, and I don't know what it was like for you, but I know that as I was watching the news reports and, and you know, hearing, you know, Panama City, Mexico Beach, Cape Sandblast, Port St. Joe, St. George Island, for me personally... These are not just, you know, names on a map of some faraway place, but these are places where our family has vacationed for years. Uh, Panama City, uh, my, first, this, my first college summer, so my, the summer of my freshman year, I actually got a job in Panama City that summer so I could work on the beach, you know, so I could be on the beach every day, uh, but worked at a restaurant there. So for me, uh, this has been very personal, and I know for many of you, since we live so close to the Gulf Coast, uh, many of us have, have years and years and years of memories. Uh, also, you know, was checking in on people that I knew had property there. Uh, and then to hear Randy and Betsy talk about what's happening in South Georgia and Florida. I mean, in the farmers, and well, and in Florida, but in that whole area. And as I paused and reflected on that this week, I wondered, I, I kind of wanted to think about what are the emotions? Think about yourself. Kind of what has this experience been? like for you um, as you think about how this hurricane has affected you, maybe in contrast to some others. Um, one of the pictures that's just so vivid for me is, um, sorry, Marty, I know this, I'm getting a little bit of feedback there, but one of the, the pictures that is so vivid for me is that drone shot of Mexico Beach, and those of you, you might have seen that, and for our family, for many years, uh, Mark's family, his dad, we did a, a, like a fishing family vacation, and when we started going down there, uh, our oldest daughter, Mary, was just, you know, two years old, uh, and then through the years, you know, more cousins came, but we were in three different properties over the years as the family grew, but um, watching that drone shot, all three of the houses where we vacationed over a period of probably 10 to 15 years, there's nothing there. I mean, literally, just we're talking concrete slabs, and that is in a very... Um, to know that there's a place where you have memories, where you have laughed, you've loved, you've, you know, had family vacations, and it's gone. Um, I think for some, it might have, it might make you feel, uh, or kind of just an awareness of the temporalness of this life, that here's a structure that was made out of bricks and mortar, and, and you know, but now it's just washed away. As we think about, um, I, I think about people who are just starting out in life. Maybe you are, you know, you have your first job and you're off your parents payroll almost and so you're starting to you know save money for a down payment on a house or get your car paid off you know understanding that that these possessions and these things that we work so hard for uh, it's it's very temporal in nature and yet even though it is temporal it's important to us as well um one of our former youth from another church, she's, you know, out of college now and on her own, and she and her family live in the Mexico Beach area. Her dad was stationed at Tyndall, and, uh, and then they just stayed down there after his retirement. But she said, I, she said, 
I can't remember exactly how the Facebook post went, but this was the essence of what she said was, basically, I don't want to be rude and mean. She said, but I'm tired of hearing all these posts about, well, it's just material things, it's just material possessions. She said, our house is gone. And she said, that's where my memories are. This was our home. This is where, you know, we sat around the kitchen table. So it is material and it is temporal, but there is this connection to our lives and our history and our families so often. Um, I think about also, and this kind of takes me to the scripture passage that we're looking at today. When we hear of hurricanes and natural disasters, something inside of us just says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, You know, it harkens us back to the Garden of Eden where life was not, um, there were not natural disasters. It was this perfect, safe world. And I don't completely understand this, but Paul, as he writes uh, to one of his churches, he he says that the inference is that even creation is under the curse and brokenness of sin. And he says creation is longing for the the revealing of the sons of, of God, the children of God. And I don't completely understand all that, but we know in our souls and our spirit that this is not Eden. This is not God's original design for humanity. When our passage that we're looking at today, the context of it, and this is kind of where I want to lead us. We talked about this last week, but I think it bears repeating today. Jesus, um, in the final days on on the earth, um, he is with his disciples, the 12 disciples. Um, the, The passage that we're looking at today occurs two days, two days before the crucifixion, two days before the crucifixion. And he is on the Mount of Olives, and he is having this final conversation with his disciples. And and the way the story goes there, the way Matthew tells this, uh, is that they were in Jerusalem, they're leaving the city, and, and the temple, Herod's temple, and y'all, this was just this magnificent structure, this magnificent, they say that the, the size of it was multiple football fields, that when you looked at it from a distance, they'd used so much gold on it, that it just gleamed in the sun, they'd used all this marble, that it looked like snow, it was just this magnificent building, the stones were, were just, just enormous, and as they're walking out of the city, Jesus looks at that and he says all of these stones are going to be are going to fall down the temple basically all of this is not going to be anymore and I, and the disciples we don't have a record of them saying anything but the next thing that Matthew tells us is they've left the city they're on the mount of olives and from the mount of olives you can see the temple you can see it there and um and it says the disciples kind of lean into Jesus this is a little bit about my words and they ask him this very powerful question they say lord tell us basically when are you coming back when is your return? What will be the signs of your return? And where is, when is it going to happen? And if you're familiar with this passage, and we, again, we talked about it last week, so I don't want to go back over that, uh, the, all of it in its entirety. But basically, Jesus said, you know, nobody knows. He said, even the angels don't know. I don't know. Only our Heavenly Father knows when my return will be. And he says, but let me tell you what the signs of the end of the age will be. And one One of the things that he tells us there in that passage, he said, there will be wars and there will be rumors of war, there will be famine and there will be earthquakes. And he says, but don't be 
alarmed. It's just the signs that we are living, and I'm going to add my commentary to it. We are living in what's called the church age, the church age, the time between the crucifixion and the ascension and the return of Jesus. We are living in the church age, and life will go on with its highs and its lows and its wars and its rumors of wars and, and hurricanes and all of this. This is a part of the brokenness of humanity. And then, and I, I wish you could just picture it. I've just this week, I've just tried to imagine myself sitting there that I'm one of the 12. So, you know, Peter, think about Peter, this, you know, kind of loud, kind of all in kind of guy. You've got John, a little bit more quiet, a little bit more reflective. You've got Judas, who's going to betray Jesus. And they're sitting around him. And, and then Jesus leans in, and basically he gives them four parables. We call them four Advent parables because there are parables where he is trying to say, this is who I want you to be during this long wait for my return. Basically, I don't know how long it's going to be. Only our Father in heaven knows. But basically, the, he's, he's setting them up to say, it's not going to be soon. It's not going to be imminent. And all four of these parables kind of talk about this repetitive. As you read them, there, there's this theme going through it. But the theme is, is that those in the story get tired of waiting, and they do not continue to be responsible and faithful stewards of the message of the gospel. They get weary. They get weary. And he says, stay alert, be awake, be faithful stewards. May you be found at work when I, when I return. Now, the, the parable, we looked at one of the parables last week, and we're going to look at the third parable. There's one, two, three, and four. I wish we had uh, time to go into all of them, but I'm going to jump to the third parable today, and it's there in your bulletin. And so in this, what Jesus is telling them, this is the posture of of your heart. This is who, you know, James, John, Peter, as y'all are standing here, you know, I've told you, I'm going to leave. And when, while the long wait, the long wait of the church age, this is who I want you, my disciples and by extension us, to be during the long wait. Let's jump in. You've got it there in your bulletins. Jesus says again, because again, he's given them three consecutive parables, and we are in the third one. He says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey. Now, the disciples would have known. This is a parable. They're accustomed to Jesus' teaching in this way. So they would have known Jesus is the man who's about to go on the journey because they just ask him, you know, when are you going to return? How will we know? So here is Jesus. He says, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants together. The disciples would have instantly identified, okay, we know, we know this genre. You are the master. We are the servants. We are the ones. And this is what the master does. He entrusts his wealth to them. Again, they've kind of heard parables like this. They kind of know this theme. It's like, okay, we've kind of heard this story before. We know we're going to be entrusted with your mission to do your work on this earth while you're gone. And then he says, and this is where the surprising part comes. This is where it's the, oh man, I didn't see that one coming. He goes on and he says that, that this master is going to entrust his wealth to these servants. And he says to one, 
he gave five bags of gold. That's what your translation there says, one, five bags of gold. Now, some translations will, will, uh, will re render this, um, that they gave them, that the master gave them five talents. And talents is actually really the best, um, the best translation of this word. But the challenge for us in our Western, you know, 2018 South Georgia or Middle Georgia mindset is, is when we hear the word talent, what, what do we think of? We think of our abilities. You know, we think about can we sing? Can we lead? And we instantly go to that place. Y'all, that is not at all how these early disciples would have heard that. that. That would have been foreign to their thinking. When they heard that word, what that word is, it was a measure of, it was a unit. It was a, a, a measure of weight that you weighed currency. And so to say that you were going to have five talents. Now, and I looked at this in multiple places to make sure that I wasn't off on this, but the general consensus is this would have been in today's currency, this would have been about a million and a half half dollars. A million and a half dollars. Okay, so right now, put yourself, You put, imagine you are Peter, and you are a fisherman, and so your, your you know, your, um, your income is, is not that much. You know what I'm saying? You make your living fishing. If the fish aren't good, you know, then, then the season's not good. You might not be doing too well financially. Now you have left all that, and you are basically this missionary. You know, you're following Jesus. So I don't think you got a lot of financial wealth. You might, but my, my understanding is there's not a lot there. And so for them to have heard this, it would have just been shocking. It's like, what? That master is going to give this one servant over almost, you know, a million and a half dollars? And that would have been like, oh, I'm paying attention because if I'm the servant and Jesus is the master, what is it that he is entrusting me with? Then he goes on and he says, he gave one the five bags of gold and he gave the other one two bags. Okay, so this would have been about $800,000 or so if I'm doing my math right. Um, and if somebody's got your calculators out there, I might have got, but basically uh, right under a million dollars. They're still shocked. Then to the other one, the other servant, he's going to give one bag or one talent, but the amount of what that would have been worth would have been about $300,000. I don't know about y'all, but $300,000 would be a lot of money to market me. <laughs> it would be a lot. And so that is what is just kind of shocking them as they hear this. And so then he goes on and he says that they've been given this money. He said, each according to his ability. And I wonder if they cut their eyes and they looked at one another. And they're looking at Peter and, you know, and some of the guys who, you know, are a little bit quieter. And it's like, man, I wish I had Peter's boldness. And then somebody else is kind of cutting their eyes and looking over at John and saying, man, I wish I had John's compassion and empathy and just the ability to love and be tender and kind. And they're kind of cutting their eyes at one another. And I don't know about y'all, but whenever I compare myself to somebody else, I always fall up short. Now, some people, they compare themselves to others, and then they, you know, they're prideful. I'm not one of those people. I always think, man, they're so much, you know, smarter. They're so much uh, more talented, more gifted. But I wonder, they're looking around at one another and saying, what is it that we have been entrusted with? 
the parable goes on, and it says, The man who had received the five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work, and he gained five more bags. So also the one with the two bags of gold gained more. But the man who had received the one bag, he went off and he dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. Now, as the parable goes on, and, and if you've heard this story before, you know that there is a long wait. Then the master comes back, and he checks in with his servants. And he says, basically, what did you do with what I entrusted you with? So the, the one who had the five, he gained five more. And the, and the master says, you know, well done. Uh, you know, enter into my, you know, how does it say it here? Uh, uh, see, I've gained five more. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Come and share in your master's happiness. There's this celebration. And in that, there is the inference. And again, y'all, this would have just been shocking because the scriptures say this parable, these are servants. These, and we have a hard time understanding that in our world today. But, but the inference is, is that this servant then was able to keep the wealth that they had gained and enter into the joy of your master that this servant was now being welcomed into the family. And, and I wonder if, you know, as they're thinking about that, they're wondering and they're saying, oh my gosh, in, in my, you know, middle Georgia, the way Frank, you know, oh my gosh, um, Jesus, you trust us this much. You trust us this much. We're just fishermen. We're just simple men. We're uneducated. You trust us this much with the gospel, with your message of the good news to, to, do, to continue the work that you've been doing on this earth? I think their hearts would have been, wow, wow, what a, what a job, what a responsibility. And he goes on and he says then, he says, you know, the, the one that had the two, he went and he worked and he was wise with it. And then he, you know, he gained two more. But then there was the one who just got the one bag. And, and the parable goes that he, that he hid his money. He hid his money and he buried it in the ground. And, and, and then he basically gets rebuked by the master. And he says, what at least you could have done was, was you know, put it at the bank and get some interest. And the excuse that that guy gets, it's so interesting to me. The excuse that he gives, the, the one that was not a wise steward, he says, you know, I knew that you were a harsh man. I knew that you were a harsh man, and so I was fearful. You were a harsh man, and I was fearful. And so I'm just imagining as these guys are sitting there, and us vicariously kind of getting to lean in and listen to Jesus talking to them, is that they were thinking, I wonder if they were thinking, because this is kind of how it's hit me as I've, as I've thought about this passage, and I've just, you know, let it go over and over in my mind this week, is, wow, Jesus trusts me a lot that he has, I've been forgiven of my sins. I am a child of God. I have received his grace and mercy in ways that I do not even deserve. And he has allowed me to be his child, to extend his love and grace to a broken world. And if I in my mind think that God is holding back with me, you know, holding back his grace, his giftedness, the opportunities, and, and that he is a harsh man, that, then I can be fearful. But if I can step into it and say, oh my goodness, I get to be a partner with what Jesus is doing in the world today and that the power of the Holy Spirit, the gifts and the graces, the ability, all of this is, is we're partnering together to extend his love and mission to the world. 
he loves and trusts me that much? And so I think the disciples would have been going, wow, look what it is that God is calling us to do, equipping us to do, and enabling us to do. Now, often, again, we look at this parable and we think about our, our personal talents, and, and that is one way to look at this. But I think it's much bigger than this. I think it's bigger than, I think that it was, it's more about the gospel. It's more about extending the kingdom of God. As you look at the New Testament, what did they do? They, they, they preach the good news about the resurrection, and the New Testament church that, you know, we read about it in the book of Acts, they were marked by two things. One, the proclamation of the gospel, but they also were marked by compassionate generosity, compassionate generosity. You see it through the letters. You see it through the book of Acts. They were going about extending. Jesus said that he was, they were, he was doing good and healing all those who were sick and oppressed of the devil. And then you see the New Testament church doing all of that. And so I think that Jesus has given us stewardship of three things. And I want to talk just briefly about that. And we mentioned it, yes, last Sunday, but I think it bears repeating because Jesus repeated it four times. So I'm just repeating it to you twice. So <laughs> anyway, but, but I think that we are stewards of this moment in history. I think we're stewards of this season of the church age. And we talked about last year, I mean, I love that our name of our church is Martha Bowman because it always points to those who came before us and points us to the future, those who will come after us. And I think we are stewards of this moment in history, this moment in time, this geographic footprint of which we are in. I think we are also stewards of our time. You know, time is the great equalizer. We we all have 24 hours every single day. How we prioritize our time, I think, is, is, a, is a, something that we are stewards of. Um, I think our talents, and again, this is one piece of it, the unique giftedness that God has given each one of us, we are stewards of how we are going to deploy that for the kingdom of God. And then the final thing is our financial wealth. And I, and I don't want us to miss the point of this, that in this parable, he is literally talking about money. I mean, that is the currency that he gives here. And so also, how are we um, being good stewards of the financial resources that God has given us at this unique time in our, our life and in our family's life and in our history to be a part of what God is doing in the earth today? Um, and I wonder, do you, when you look at this parable, do you think of yourself kind of as a five bag of gold person? Uh, or do you see yourself as the three bag of gold person in terms of, how, you know, of what you have stewardship over to do good with? Or do you see yourself as the one bag gold of person? Think about that just for a second. Here's one thing that you might not be aware of. I think, well, this is, I'll just tell you about me. When I look around me, I definitely never feel like I'm the five-bag gold person because there's always Bill Gates, you know. <laughs> there's always somebody that's way, way further out there than I am. However, did you know that if you if your family annual income is at least forty eight thousand a year, forty and I know not everyone is there, but if your annual family income right now is at at least forty eight thousand dollars a year, did you know that you are in the one percentile of wealth in the world today? The one percentile. 
Doesn't that just blow your mind? We are so accustomed to look into the right and look into the left and look into around us. But sometimes we forget, y'all, that God has allowed us to be five bag gold, you know, stewards of the opportunities that he has given us. And what Jesus is calling his disciples to do in this, in this parable is be about your master's work. Be about the gospel, the kingdom, extending my love and my grace and my teaching to the world and those in your sphere of influence. I know this because the very next parable, the very next parable that he tells, he says, you know, he said, the coming when I return, he said, this is what it's going to be like. He said, the nations are going to be gathered before me. And he said, and I'm going to separate humanity, basically. And this is kind of hard. This is hard to hear sometimes. And he said, I'm going to separate just like a, a, a shepherd would separate, separate the a farmer would separate the sheep from the goats. And he says, those who have been doing these things, who have been um, taking care of the sick, welcoming the stranger, giving water to the thirsty, and, and visiting those who are sick and, and imprisoned. He said, these are the ones that I'm going to say, well done, my good and my faithful you know, child, enter into the joy of your master. So in the parables, he's building and he's building, but that fourth one is really the, the, the kind of the interpretation of where he's headed with every single one of these parables. And at the close of this section of Scripture, Next comes the betrayal and the crucifixion and the rest of Matthew's story that we know so well. So my question for you and my question for me is how do we live into this generosity that God has entrusted us with? When the, when the wait is long, when it's been over 2,000 years, he has still called us as a church to be about our master's business. And I want to drill down to one specific way because we are in our, um, it's called, our, we call it our stewardship campaign, our annual campaign. If you're visiting with us today, uh, let me, this is, now this is just for the family. So you just get to sit back and listen. You don't have to act on this at all. But if you would call Martha Bowman home, if you're either a or a regular, you know, regular attendee. This, this is family talk. One of the things that, that we encourage people to do during this time of year when we are looking at our 2019 budget, we invite people to make a pledge to the annual budget so that we can faithfully and wisely envision and dream and plan for what God would have us do as a church family to extend the mission of the kingdom, just like he's telling us to. So a couple of aspects of generosity. Why why do we ask you to, to fill out that pledge card? And it's there in your bulletin. Um, it's for a couple of reasons. It's one, so we can be wise stewards. You know, go, go back to that parable. We can be wise stewards, and we don't overcommit ourselves to do things that there's not the financial backing to do. It also is for you. It's so that you can be generous. Because I think there's like two, two parts of generosity. It's like almost like two sides of the same coin. There's planned generosity, which means, you know, and, and the Old Testament called this the tithe, where it's you sit down, you look over your finances. If you're, a, you know, married, you and your spouse, you look it over and you say, you know what, we want to give a percentage of our income, whether that's weekly or whether that's monthly or maybe it's an annual gift. We want to give a percentage of our income so that I'm not being swayed by the emotion of the moment, the fear of the moment, you know, what bills are coming in. Uh, but you say, we're going to just faithfully give. 
The, uh, so that, that's that planned giving. That's generosity. The other is what I like to call spontaneous giving. That's when there is a need and, you're like, and your heart is moved and you're like, oh my gosh, we need to give to this right now because we need to extend grace and help. Now, let's talk about the hurricane and how these two fit together. And it just gives us an example. A part of the tithes and offerings, and this is only one small example, but I want to show you how this works. So a part of the tithes and the offerings here at Martha Bowman go into a certain percentage of what comes in. We also give that. It's called our apportionments, but it's our missional giving that we give to the larger United Methodist Church. One of the, one of the programs that your tithes and offerings sponsor is the Methodist Church's um, ability to provide relief efforts. They call it the, the Council and Relief, or I'm, I might have the name exactly wrong. But basically, as soon as um, the hurricane was, was coming in, they were, you know, we were seeing the satellite images, the Weather Channel was telling us about it. Do you know what the Methodist Church was doing, those who are part of the, this relief team? They were putting their system, you know, so you've got people who are paid salaries. This is their job. They're getting ready and putting their systems into place so that we can immediately respond. Um, I heard someone say, Mark worked years ago uh, with, the, with the relief efforts um, as a you know, part of the organization there in the Methodist Church, and he said that there are some denominations who are uh, the first ones in. So after a crisis, they're the ones bringing in the baby wipes and the water and you know the things that Randy was talking about, which is so important. And they said the Methodist Church typically is not the first one on the ground. We are typically the second one in the ground, but what we feel God has called us to do is to help with the rebuilding of areas that are affected by disasters. So you can see how it all works together. So your planned giving. So those of you who were tithers this past year here at Martha Bowman, just know that you are a part of what the Methodist Church has in place to begin to provide relief to the, to the, to the coast into South Georgia. I mean, is that amazing? You didn't, maybe some of you, like for me, it comes out in a draft. I don't even think about it. I don't even think about it. But it was like I was putting into a bank account, putting into a bank account along with your money and others' money all across the South Georgia Conference. And now when people need that money, it's there for them. It's there for them. We're ready to go. So there is that planned, systematic, percentage, off-the-top generosity. The second part is when there is a need and you are moved by the moment. And, uh, and you know, Randy um, told me, um, or maybe Betsy told me, I think Betsy told me this. So uh, Randy uh, talked about the, the needs in Blakely at the 830 service. Do you know how much they gave at the 830 service? Probably 100 people, 100 people in there maybe. Um, they gave $800, $800, just boom, just like that, just like that. Because Martha Bowman, you are generous. You are a generous people. And we are doing what Jesus told his disciples to do in this parable. We are extending generosity and, compa and compassion. And here is how that fits into the gospel. is because when people see you and they see me and they see the church, and we are doing what Jesus would do if he were physically here, it points to Jesus. It points to the gospel. It points to his extravagant love, his extravagant grace and love, which points to what he did for us on the cross. Today, we will celebrate uh, and Holy Communion, and if the ushers would like to come up that are going to be helping with communion, you can come on up now. Um, 
Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, the night in which he was betrayed, just a couple of days after he had this conversation that we've been talking about today, his disciples gathered in a room, the upper room, and he took the bread and he held it up and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And likewise, he took the cup and he held it up and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. He said, as often as you eat and drink of this, you remember and proclaim my death. Y'all, that's what we get to do today. I love in the liturgy, the Methodist liturgy, it starts off and it says, Christ our Lord invites to his table, invites to his table. This is not Martha Bowman's table. This is the table of our Lord. He invites to his table and this is who he invites. All who love him, all who love him, all who would say, I want to repent of my sins. And those who would seek to live in peace with their brothers, that's who he invites to his table. That's who he invites today. So I'm going to close my eyes here, and we're going to pray. And I'm going to have a moment of silence. And during that moment of silence, I want to invite you. If there, is, if there are things that you need to get right with the Lord, this is your chance. This is your chance to say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to be obedient to you. And as we come to the table as, as, as Methodists, we believe that God extends his grace. We don't understand how it is a mystery. What we believe that as we come and receive communion, that God extends his grace and allows us to be his instruments and his children of peace and love in the world today. Let's pray.